Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. Guide and lead us. Show us what you want us to see from all of this and help us to see you because you are in control of all things. You are the one that is, is leading things and allowing things so, so that we can be drawn closer to you and that the world can be drawn closer to you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Book of Habakkuk. After the book of Nahum, before Zephaniah, in case you're trying to find it still, the name Habakkuk means embrace. Embrace, hug. Uh, and so we have this, and the author of the book, by the very first ver verse of the book, says that it's Habakkuk. Now, it's kind of funny, and I'm going to just bring this out because you're going to hear different people. In the late uh, 1900s, last century, <laughs> uh, or mid-middle, mid, mid people started questioning everything that was accepted. We, it says Habakkuk wrote it, so now they're trying to say, well, we don't know who, who, who Habakkuk is, and so we don't even know if this guy's real, so it may not be Habakkuk. And, you know, in the mid-1800s to mid-1900s, all of this rationalistic stuff kind of started coming in, and the Bible is the only book they do this to. They presume that it's not true until they can prove that it's true. In the past, history has always accepted a book for what it said until they proved it wrong. And so now they're trying to take the Bible and say, well, we're not sure that it's true because we can't prove that it's true. And this is a big problem out there for people. They don't do this with Plato. They don't do this with Shakespeare. They don't do it with any of the great writers of the past except for the Bible. Why? Because Satan wants to bring doubt to the Bible and make sure people don't really believe the Bible. And so this is a problem. You know, we, I've actually done study. Do you know that as, as great as we have on, the, on Shakespeare and all of his plays, we don't know how much of it is what he actually wrote? Because people have altered it over the years for, the play, for, their, for their playwright and their... And their, and their uh, their shows and everything. So we don't fully know how much of what is attributed to Shakespeare is actually his writing and how much of it has been adapted over the years to be perfected. And yet you'll never hear somebody say, well, I don't believe Shakespeare wrote that. Even though we know parts of it have been <laughs> adapted. And yet with the Bible all the time, well, we don't know if there was really a guy named Job. That was just a a story. We don't know about this creation stuff. We don't know about Habakkuk being the writer. We don't know about Micah being the writer. We don't even know if there was a real David and Solomon. And, you know, all these things that they come up with now, they prove that David and Solomon exist. But, you know, but for years, it was all this, we don't know. Until we prove something, we don't know. So I'm just preparing you, if you hear this kind of stuff, understand that this is the rationalizations that came in when people were starting to doubt the Bible in the late 1800s to the mid-1900s. And you'll hear it all the time. Well, we don't know. You read the older, you write the, you read the older theologians and everything, they're going to tell you, Habakkuk said he wrote the, the book, Habakkuk wrote the book. Um, and so we want to be able to understand this process. And it's going on all the time. You know, well, we don't know. How many of the Psalms were written by David? Well, most of them were attributed to David, but we don't know if David really wrote that many. Ultimately, I don't care. <laughs> I really don't care who the author is because ultimately the author is God. He's the one that told them what to write, which is why it's in the scriptures. 
And if, if I find out that Habakkuk was a pseudonym and that somebody was able to prove it, praise God, fine, that's okay. It's still written and it's still God's word. I actually think Habakkuk wrote it because he said he wrote it. And I don't believe that God would have let him not use that name without us knowing about it. So, and here in this particular case, we know nothing about Habakkuk. He's not mentioned anywhere else. He, all we know is what, that Habakkuk wrote this book uh, from what he says. The date of the book appears, they don't know exactly, but it appears to be in the late 7th century BC. So that would put it somewhere around 626 to 620 BC. Now, I want you all to remember that when you're in the BC period, 626 to 620. When you're in the BC era, the, the numbers, the closer you get to us, get smaller instead of bigger because we started, we started the year one, and then the further out we get, we add numbers to it. So sometimes it's hard when you're looking at these, and I go, you know, 626 to 602, and you're going, uh, that's kind of backwards, isn't it? No, it's perfect for a BC, <laughs> BC date. Why do we know that it's this? Because that is the period of time that the, northern, uh, this, uh, the nation of Judah fell to Babylon. And we know when they fell to Babylon, because Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon at that time, and we know that he reigned in that period of the late 7th century. So we know the period of time, because he's going to talk about Babylon coming, Babylon being, being used to destroy them. So it's right at the time that they, they fell, or just after the period of when they fell. Nebuchadnezzar was still a Jew, right? Huh? He was still a Jew, right? No. Nebuchadnezzar was a Babylonian, a Chaldean. And uh, no, he wasn't, a, wasn't even close to a Jew. <laughs> Um, he ran the, the nation of Babylon, which is where Babylon is, and he came down and he conquered all the known, all of that Middle Eastern area in his lifetime. Um, so we, we know that this is what was going on here. The main themes of this book is basically the mysteries of good, uh, God protects, delivers, the God is sovereign. There's a lot of subtle themes in here. As far as the outline of the book, it starts out with Habakkuk complaining. <laughs> All right, the first four verses is Habakkuk complaining. The next six verses, five to 11, is God's answer to Habakkuk. And then in, in verses 12 through 17, we have Habakkuk's second complaint to God. <laughs> you know, he, he, he likes to complain. He, but, you know, in the same token, he's just like we are, except he was willing to express it out loud. Many times, we as Christians don't, aren't ready to express our complaints to God. Maybe if we get out all alone, we might go, God, you know, have you lost your mind? Have you, you know, uh, God, where are you? <laughs> That's usually the way we ask it. God, where are you? What we're saying is, God, have you lost control? Have you lost your mind? But, you know, and this is basically Habakkuk's complaint. Chapter 2 is Habakkuk seeing God revealing what he's doing to Habakkuk in such a way that he has a new, fresh vision and ends up content with what's God, what God is doing. And this happens to us as well. We complain to God, we argue with God, we get mad at God. God reveals himself through, through his word, through some teaching, 
and all of a sudden we get this epiphany on this is what God is doing and this is how we're supposed to live, and hopefully we get content <laughs> in, the, in that process. And then the, the fifth part of it is chapter 3, and it's a psalm or a prayer that uh, Habakkuk ma- makes. And it's called a psalm. It's desi- desi- des- designed to be sung. So we have all of this going on, and that's the outline of this, this book. It's kind of a fun book. I've read it already two or three times. Seems how it's only three chapters. So, uh, and we're going to start at verse 1. The burden of Habakkuk, the prophet, did see, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear, even cry out unto you of violence, and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are are that rise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked do compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. This is Habakkuk's complaint. And, you know, I read this and I'm thinking, this looks just like our time. All right. So he starts out the burden or the oracle or the vision that he has from God. All right. And so it says the, the burden or the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet did see. And then he starts out with, O Lord, and this uses the word Yahweh, the, the, the actual name of God that God gave to his people, the existing one, the I am uh, in this. How long shall I cry? And this word for cry means to cry out for help. How many times do we cry out for help and believe and think that God is not listening? God, how come you're not listening? And we probably won't admit that that's what we're thinking to anybody. But oftentimes we are there in that place and saying, God, I keep calling out to you and you're, and you're not listening. You're not, you're not helping. You're not doing anything. And this is what Habakkuk is saying. Uh, and will you not hear? And this word for hear is to hear and act or, you know, hear, hear, I, I hear and obey. If you've ever, ever watched some of the older movies about the Middle East especially, you know, they have, I hear and obey. <laughs> this is that kind of statement. God, how long will you not hear and obey? Now, this is presumptuous as far as I'm concerned. God, you have to hear my words and you have to obey what I say. It's kind of a scary thought. All right. But it can also mean, God, how will you hear and, and step forward and do something? All right. Uh, and he says, God, you're not listening. You're not hearing and acting. Even when I cry out for you for help unto the violence and you will not save. And this is kind of a very interesting time because if you look at our world today, how much violence and injustice is going on all around us. And this is what Habakkuk's looking at. God People are hurting each other. They're stealing from each other. They're taking advantage of every, each other. You know, they're looting and ra- you know, pillaging and all these things. And God, don't you care? Why do you not respond? Now, he's going to find out that God says, well, they're getting what they deserve because of their sin. But from the righteous point of view, it gets hard to look at all the sin around us. All the violence, all the stuff going on and not wonder why 
God, how can you, in your righteousness and holiness, handle looking at what's going on? In verse 4, he says, uh, verse 3, why do you show me in iniquity and cause me to behold grievances? Have you ever been in a place where you just looked around and saw all the evil going on (laughs) and you end up heartbroken? Now, the sad thing is that we see it so much that we tend to get hardened toward it. I remember listening to one pastor one time, and because I've been around homosexuality so much, I know it's a sin and all of that. But he saw it firsthand for the first time in a school where, where girls were kissing each other and everything. And he's going, it made him totally 100% sick. And I don't really like it, but I have... I worked in a store where out of the 30 employees, only eight of us were straight because it was one of the largest homosexual communities in the, in the, in the United States at the time. And it wasn't in D- San Francisco like most people think. But all I did was tell them, I don't want to see this stuff in my store. Keep it out of my store. But nonetheless, <laughs> you would see them in the parking lot or whatever. I had gotten a little cold toward how awful it was. He was shocked at how far it had come along. And it actually struck me, you know, how can I have gotten so immune to sin? And, you know, this is something that we have, and this is what Habakkuk is saying. Sin, he's seeing sin. And the thing about this is, do we see sin the way God does? Or are we just so used to it that we basically ignore it in others and in ourselves? Well, this is true. You see it everywhere now. And I'm getting sick of it. I'm getting so sick of it. I don't watch TV anymore for that very reason. I am. Yeah, everything has it. But you're right. Even when you're watching good, quote unquote, good shows, the commercials are full of all the garbage. And you can't get away from it. And it's like, does it bother us? You know, and when, I, when he said that, it did strike me of, I've gotten too used to, too, too used to this sin. I've, it should be striking me as an awful thing. Now, does that mean I'm going to condemn the people that are doing it? No, that's not my job. But I don't have to accept it as okay. I don't have to judge it. I don't have to attack them. But I have to get to the place where I'm saying it is wrong and be able to go through. And this is what Habakkuk's saying. You've shown me the iniquity. You've caused me to behold these grievances. You know, um, for spoiling and violence are before me. And there are that rise up in strife and contention. So he's saying, even when I'm looking on, there are people that are causing problems. And this is true for us as Christians. If we dare to take a stand for what God says is wrong, people attack us. And this is the hard part. We have to stand up for God and take the strife and contention that comes with it. Not condemning. You know, in this church, I tell people, you know, I'm, I'm willing to let anybody in, that, in those doors and be in the church and listen to God's word. Does that mean I'm not going to tell them that what they're doing is sin? No, I'm going to preach that what they're doing is sin. Now, I have a broad stroke on that because I cover just about every sin at some point through the word of God. And if people get offended, they get offended. 
I know that there are people that won't come to this church because I have dared to say that sex outside of marriage is fornication. And I know at least two people, who, uh, two couples that stopped coming to the church because I said that that was a sin. There's been several lesbians who've come in and gone after a couple of weeks because they didn't like the fact that I called homo- homosexuality a sin. Well, it is. It is. There's nothing I can say. I could probably fill this church if I could just manage to change the message and not be so, so full of what God says, but I wouldn't want to be in a church like that. So we'll just take with the people that come and understand that sin is sin. I'm not judging them for their sin. I'm just saying it is sin because we all have a sin problem. Now, and that's the big problem in front of us. All of us have some problem in our life that is sinful. And the more we get to see sin the way God sees it, the more we're going to be able to correct ourselves and love others and try to help them get out of their sin. Because this is what Habakkuk's saying. I'm seeing it everywhere. I'm seeing people that are wanting to be striving and contentious with me because I declared that they have sin and they're not liking what I say. And then he says, therefore... (laughs) The law is slacked or feeble. In other words, the law is not working. And judgment does never go forth. You know, kind of like our world right now. It seems like the law is not working. Judgment and justice does not come about. And yet, what do we do about it? Do we abandon it like so many are doing and, and take things into our own hands? Do we continue to pray for justice and, and mercy and all that other stuff? Or do we just gripe and complain like he's doing? And this is a hard thing. Because we're looking around and, you know, just think about over the last two years or so, you know, two or three years, we had people rioting in the streets, you know, looting, the, looting all these stores and nothing really happened to them. You know, Minneapolis had seven blocks of their business district burnt to the ground. And none of them apparently have ever faced charges for burning down the city. But here we have, and he says, and the wicked encircle or compass the righteousness, therefore wrong judgments proceed. Because the wicked are in charge, bad judgments happen ungodly judgments happen. And this is sad for us in America because we started out so good. This country started as a Christian nation with Christian roots and Christian foundation of law. And we look at how far we have fallen and keep in the near future without a, uh, without a revival, we're going to keep falling further and further from God's laws. This is Habakkuk's complaint. God, what is wrong with you that all this bad stuff is happening still? And, you know, and so now we're going to look at God's beginning of his answer, verse 5. Behold, you are among the heathen and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told to you. For lo, I rise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land, no Uh, to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses are swifter than the leopards, and they are more fierce than 
Then the evening wolves, their horses, their horsemen shall spread themselves, and their horsemen shall come from afar, and they shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to to eat. They shall come all for violence. Your faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand, and they shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be scorned unto them, and they shall ride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. Now this sounds like a wonderful statement, isn't it? Um, he says, Behold, you are among the heathen, or the Gentiles, and regard and wonder marvelously. And this wonder marvelously literally means you'll be astonished, astonished. In, in Hebrew, it's the same word being repeated, which means multiplied. Right? You are going to be totally astonished at what's going to happen. He's just complained that all of Israel is being disobedient, is not listening, is not judging right. And God says, well, I've got something to tell you. You're going to be amazed at my answer. Uh, he says, I will work in your days, which you will not believe, though it be told to you. So God says, I'm going to do something, and you're not going to believe what I'm going to do. How many times have you been in a place where you look and say, God, I just really don't understand what, what you're doing or why you're doing it. God, you're going to use me to do what? You're going to use that person to do what? You're going to cause what to happen? You know, God, am I going to be Job? You're going to take everything away from me, and you want me to be okay with it? God, you want me to be Paul, shipwrecked, beat everywhere I go, abused and, and imprisoned, and be content? It is an amazing thing that when God moves, oftentimes we don't understand it. Because God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And we look at it and say, God, I just can't believe that you're doing what you're, what you're doing. And this is what he told Habakkuk. You're going to see me work, but you're not going to believe it. Even though I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, you're not going to believe it. And we just finished Lamentations, which was the same story. Eli uh, Jeremiah had been told what was going to happen, and yet when it finally came with all of its speed and, and rapidity, he's going, God, I never thought that this would happen. How could this happen? You know, this is, this is just more than I thought was going to happen. When you told me we were going to be judged, I didn't expect starvation and, and uh, cannibalism and all these things to go along with your word. And this is the way that God works. And in verse 6 it says, For I will rise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, and they shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. The Chaldeans, the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar swept through all of Judah, conquering all the lands. It took him a little while to get to Jerusalem, but he just swept through all the lands and conquered. He conquers Syria. He conquers most of Egypt. He conquers all of these places. And God says, they're going to sweep through. Nothing is going to stop them. And really, when, they, when it came through, they conquered the land so quick that people are looking like, what happened? What happened? I look at these last couple years that we've gone through in America and watched how fast freedoms have been stripped away from people. 
And even more amazing is how people have not even said boo about it. You know, it's like, oh, you wanted me to stay home? Okay, I'll stay home. I can't go to the, I can't go here? Okay, I'll just stay, I won't go there. Over and over. You want me to do what? And they just do it. And they're not even thinking about it and how fast our country has changed. Now, I know that God said it was going to happen, and I'm kind of like Jeremiah looking around saying, God, you, you said it was going to happen, but I didn't expect it to happen this quick. Not even this soon, but this quick. I kind of expected it to be a long, drawn-out process, and it really has been. I mean, you can go back to the early 1900s and see the process starting. But, you know, all of a sudden, the speed of the change is just one of those things where you look at and say, God, how is this going on? Because people are not seeking God. They're not looking for justice. They're not looking for righteous answers. And it says, the Chaldeans just came through, swept the land. One day, one day you're Israelite, the next day you're Babylonian. Now, it took about three or four years, but you understand what I'm saying, how quick. The, the nation had been in existence for almost 500 years, and the next thing you know, they're not a nation anymore. They're, they're part of the Babylonian Empire. And that quick to them. You know, one day they're, they're, not, they're, they're a nation with a king, and the next time they're part of the Babylonian Empire. And this is what God is saying. You're not going to believe it. You're not going to believe how fast it's coming, how, how quickly it's going to come. And it says of the Babylonians, they are terrible and dreadful. They were. They were very vicious to their people. When they did, the people who did live through their conquering were shipped out to be exiles to other places, Nebuchadnezzar had one great thing. He knew how to keep his kingdom. He'd conquer a land. He'd ship their people all through the empire and bring people from the empire back to their land so that there was all kinds of different people living next to each other so that you did not have this nationality is issue going on. Uh, one of the problems that Hitler had is that he didn't ship his people out. So he conquered France, but France had a great partisan group of people because they were fighting for their homeland. Same thing in the Netherlands. They had a great uprising of people fighting because they want their homeland back. Nebuchadnezzar said, fine, you, I don't want this, so he'd ship everybody out of their homeland all through the kingdom and bring people into their houses. So when he says that, you know, to possess dwelling places that are not your, theirs, he literally meant it. You know, you'd be moved out of your house to the northwest corner of the king empire and he'd bring somebody from the northwest corner of the empire and put them into your house. People were being forced to move. That way there was no national loyalty. People weren't going to fight. You know, number one, I, don't, I don't even, can't even speak to my neighbor because they don't speak the same language you know, unless we both spoke Chaldean. So I couldn't hardly speak to them. So I'm definitely not going to rise up and, and go to war against them because I don't know who you are and I don't know why, what your loyalties are or anything. So Nebuchadnezzar was that type of person. He just swapped people all over the place. All right. He says, they are terrible, they are dreadful, their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Now, think about this. Where are we today? There is no absolute truth. Whatever I believe is true. This is what he just said. Their judgments and their dignity come from themselves. I think this is good, so it's good. I don't care what you believe. You, you can believe what you want, but you know, we're each going to decide what we want to believe and, what, and, and you're going to accept what I believe because we're all equal and there is no real absolute truth. You know, 
And what is our world today doing? There is no absolute truth. Whatever I believe is right. And by the way, if you disagree with me, then we have a problem because you're supposed to believe that what I believe is right is okay, even if you don't agree with it, and I'll believe what you believe is right, unless you're a Christian. If you're a Christian saying God is right, there's a problem with you. You are, you are bad. <laughs> but if you're saying that I believe this just because it came out of my mind, they'll be happy with you. And this is what he said. The Babylonians were that type of people. And we want to understand Babylon from as far back as its origins has been this way. Nimrod built the city of Babylon and he is responsible for all false religions. He laid the foundation for false religions and multiple gods. Started with Babylon. Well, it started long before that, but he's the one that really formalized worship. And when he was building the Tower of Babel, it was a tower that was also going to be used for human sacrifice and, and worshiping of the, the 36 gods in his pantheon. He only had 36 gods, so, but he was pushing for a lot of gods. And so all these, all these religions go all the way back to Nimrod and Babylon and have been processed over the years, and all of them have their root there. And here we're seeing the same thing, Babylon coming back again pushing all of the other religions now upon the Jews. And everything's coming from their own, from themselves. All right? And this is a problem. How many people in our world want to live as if they're their own God? Anybody who's not saved anyway. And even those who are following other gods are picking a God that follows out of their own heart. You know, I like to do whatever, so I'm going to find a God that allows me to do what I like to do. During this period of time, during the, the centuries of Rome and Greece, you had a God and goddess for everything. I mean, you had, a God, or you had gods of war. If you worshiped that God, what did you do? You went to war. You know, you had a God of your fertility. What did you do? You had orgies in your worship. You had the God of thieves. So what did you do to worship the God of thieves? You stole. Oh, yeah. There was a God for every, every possible sin had its own God. And the way that you worshiped that God was to participate in what God would say was a sin, but they said was the way to worship their God. You know, uh, you wanted power, you had to give up whatever was most valuable to you to get the power from the gods of power, which usually was your family or your wife or a child or something. Uh, you know, all of these things, Satan demented people into worshiping and going into sins and thinking they were doing something good and so doing. What is happening in today's world? People are committing sins thinking they're doing good. And the problem we have as Christians, if we're not in God's word, how many times do we catch ourselves thinking the way the world does and doing things that God says is sin and thinking we're doing something okay and good? Now, we're not going to go out and murder and steal necessarily, but how many times are there Christians and this one has gotten me in trouble before, living together so they don't lose their retirement money. Happens all the time in the older community now. The older ones used to not 
you, know, you didn't worry about them committing fornication because they had God's standards on it. Now because they are so attuned to be deemed dependent upon the government and their, and their retirement income, they want to live together. I actually had somebody say, will you marry us in the church, but we won't file a marriage license because we don't want to lose our social security amount. And I'm going, no, I won't. You know, your motive is totally wrong. Now, if it became a problem for getting married, I do marriages in the, in the church without having license, but not to cheat the government for, for, for the uh, retirement. That, you know, their motive was totally wrong. And, you know, while I don't really believe that the government has any business registering it, there's nothing necessarily against the Bible for that to be the case, so I'm going to follow the government in that one. But if the government's trying to manipulate it and saying marriage is wrong, then I'd marry people in the church all the time that needed to be married so they'd have at least God's blessing. And, but if they're trying to cheat the government, no, we're not going to go that way. We're not going to do something of that nature because the world says it's okay, but I can't see anywhere in the Word of God where it says do it that way. And that's gotten some people mad at me over the time. But it is what it is. And we need to be careful that we're not doing things the way of the world and then trying to say God's going to bless it. God does not bless our willful disobedience and turn it to good. Now, if we do something and we're not being willful, we didn't know about it, then God will say, okay, now I've taught you, now let's get it corrected. And then it's up to you to get it corrected. And then he'll say, okay, we're going to turn what you did in and use it for good because you did not willfully disobey. But when we willfully disobey, there's going to be consequences. And we have to understand, we have the freedom to choose whatever we want to do. We don't have the freedom to choose the consequences for that action. God will bring the consequences for the action no matter what we want based upon what we chose to do. So when we honor God and do it his way, most of the time we get a blessing in being obedient. Now that blessing can come in the disguise of hard times, but, <laughs> but mostly it becomes a good thing. And we watch what God does. If I willfully choose to disobey, God says, we're just going to let those consequences fall upon you and you get, to, you get to suffer the consequences, whether they're spiritual or physical. He says, you're going to have or probably both in most cases. And no matter what, when we're obedient, at the very least, we have spiritual good. We might have to go through hard times physically. Job was a man who was acting perfectly in God's sight and he went through a pretty bad time, losing everything. But he stayed spiritually blessed. And when he got to the end of that period, God says, now, Job, pray for these four men who have been making your life miserable for the last, <laughs> last month, year, whatever it was. <laughs> pray for them. And the amazing thing is, Job prayed for them and said, okay, I'm still spiritual. God said to pray for you, I'm going to pray for you. And he asked God not to judge them for what they deserved. And God blessed them. What a blessing that Job put on them when he could have said, God, yeah, it's now time for you to go get them. They, they didn't speak for you. you. You just take them. You take and punish them. But that wasn't his heart. 
you know, and we need to be able to understand Jesus said to love our enemies, do good to those who despitefully use us. Now, that, now we all know how easy that is in our flesh. That's just what we want to do, right? I'm being tongue-in-cheek there, you know. Last thing I want to do is bless anybody who's making my life miserable. And yet, God says, I'm to love them. I'm to edify. I'm to build them up. I'm to encourage them. That doesn't mean saying their sin's okay. Don't get me wrong on that. But it is to say, how can I help you? And this is the hard thing for us sometimes. This person who doesn't deserve any help is to be helped, is to be cared for, is to be lifted up. We're to be nice to those that are treating us bad just because we're a Christian. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do good to them. <laughs> you know, it, it's not real easy for us to do without God. With God, it's still difficult to do, but at least I listen to him and follow him, hopefully. And here is this whole process going on. He says, they're dignity and their beliefs come out of themselves. They are doing whatever they think is right. And that's our world today. They're They're wrong still. They're wrong by God's standards, but they think they're right. And when enough people are living according to their own standards, it makes those who are living by God's standards have a really hard time holding on to what they, what they look like because we start looking like crazy people. You guys, you guys believe what? Yeah. You, you're doing what? You're doing it why? You know, you're following an invisible God? You know, you're, you're following a book that's ancient and old that has no relevance to today? Whenever, I, I, whenever somebody would tell me that, I'd go, have you even read the Bible? sounds like today. Have you read the Bible and seen how close it is to what's going on today? What, what, you know, and they haven't. They just know that everybody's told them it's an ancient book that has, it's not for today because it's, it was written 2,000 plus years ago, between two to 4,000 years ago. How can you believe a book that's that old? But the book is so relevant to today, and yet the world looks at it and says, how can you believe a book that was written that long ago? How can a book that old be relevant to today? And yet every place we read it, we see, you know, if we were just to change the names and places, we'd be reading a newspaper instead of a, instead of a book written that far long ago. It says, their horses are swifter than leopards, and they are more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horses shall spread themselves, and their horsemen shall come from afar, and they shall fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. Now, these are statements that most of us don't fully, completely understand, but he's saying, you know, a little bit of hyperbole here, the horses are swifter than leopards, which they wouldn't be, but he's speaking of how fast they came in. They attacked really quick. The Babylonians, Chaldeans, were known for their cavalry to come in and destroy the enemy uh, until certain nations were able to come up with some defenses against it. <clears throat> but originally, they were one of the fast ones. They, they were kind of like Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan swept through, through uh, Siberia and through the Urals into, into uh, eastern, uh, western, uh, western Russia. And all he did was his horses. Nobody knew what was going on because the horses swept through them so fast they, they weren't able to see what was going on. And he's saying their horses are fast. And <clears throat> they're more fierce than the evening wolves. 
Now, all I can look at is some of the TV shows that I've seen about wolves attacking at night in a pack. And apparently, they are vicious, especially when they're hungry. Uh, I have never experienced it. I hope never to experience a pack of wolves at night. Uh, but just what I see on these shows, and I'm sure that they're not fully cognizant of it, but what I've seen and what I've read in the various books, wolves are vicious. But here we have the wolves and the viciousness of the wolves that he's talking about. And he says, their horses come from afar and they shall fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. And this I have seen the pictures of in the movies of the eagles flying along and then all of a sudden they go into a dive and it's like, okay, you were way up there now you're down here and they leave with a fish or a rabbit or, or, a, or a mouse or something in their, in their claws when they come back up and they didn't hit the ground. That's like, how fast that happened. What is he talking about? This destruction was going to come quickly. And even Habakkuk never realized how quick it was going to come. Jeremiah never really realized how quick judgment fell. All through the Bible, we see God's judgment. When God runs out of patience, judgment falls, and it falls quickly. We're getting to the end days, I believe. Without a revival, we are in the end days. What will happen? We'll wake up one day, and we'll find the judgment has fallen. Great judgment has fallen. I think we're already into some of this judgment. How fast we have lost so many freedoms is, to me, the same type of picture. Judgment is falling. It's time to repent or, or go to the bottom of the pit with this judgment. And when it hits, it hits with great quickness and great speed. Verse 9 says, They shall come for the violence. Their faces shall sup up or drink up in a gulp the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. In other words, they will just take in one big gulp and swallow everything. And they're, and they're violent, and they're going to take you captive. And they were real nice to the captives. They put them in chains and drug them behind horses. And if you couldn't keep up with the horse, you got drug by those chains, which meant your hands and your feet got cut up. While, and then because you're being drugged on those nice roads with all the rocks and everything, every part, every part of your body got cut up. Not just the, where the chains drug you, but every part of your body as you were drug along behind that horse. Not that the horse was racing. The horse was just kind of walking along, but people can't keep up with a horse very easily for a long period of time. And this is what they would do to people. They were a vicious people when they, when they conquered all these people. And they that scoff, and they shall scoff at the kings or make fun of them. And the princes shall be, shall be a scorn unto them and they shall ride every stronghold, for they shall heap up dust and take it. What is Habakkuk saying? No city can stand up against the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were experts in taking cities. Now, they did not have big explosive gunpowder or anything, but they were good at surrounding cities. They were good at breaking down gates. They were good at building ramparts and and ramps up the up the so they would just ride ride up the ride up to the top of the they would build siege engines they did all kinds of things and they took cities that were supposedly unconquerable jerusalem at this point in time was considered an un
unconquerable city. Nobody before Nebuchadnezzar had conquered it since David took it. David took it from the Jebusites and nobody had been able to conquer it in all of that time and certain kings had made it even stronger over time. And people are looking at, don't attack Jerusalem. Nobody can beat Jerusalem. And God says, the Chaldeans will, the, the Babylonians will. And they ended up taking the city. And even though they had trust in it, the unconquerable city was taken. There shall his mind change and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this, his power unto his God. So Nebuchadnezzar was going to come in and he's going to take it and then he's going to say, well, my God gave it to me. And this is what ends up people saying all the time. You know, Jerusalem, Israel, when people would come against it, whenever they beat them, they're going, our God gave us victory over their God. Their God was weak. Uh, God was just using them to judge his people for their sins, but they looked at it as our God is stronger than their God until things happened to them to show them that God was still in charge. And, you know, this is, this is happening. And I think the greatest example in the scriptures is when Eli's sons went out to battle with the Ark of the Covenant and the Philistines conquered them and took the Ark of the Covenant. And every, every town that it was placed in, something bad things happened. First place they put it in was the Temple of Dagon, their God. I, know what I love that story. I love that story too. You know, they come in and the next morning, uh, they put the temple, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the next morning they find Dagon flat down in front of the temple. So they put Dagon back up and nail him in place and put, put chains in it. They come in the next morning and he's broken in pieces laying at the, the, the Ark. And then people start getting cancers and tumors and, and they're dying. So they move it to another city and the same thing happens. They move it to another city and the same thing happens. Move it to another city and the same thing happens. They say, we need to get this out of here. Their God is stronger than our God. Let's get this out of here and put it on a cart with two mother cows and say, where will they, well, wherever they're going, we'll let this go. And their calves are mooing and, and crying for them. And the mother cows go to Israel. Now, if you know anything about cows, that is a miracle in and of itself because their calves are crying and you would have expected that they would have turned around and gone back to their calves or at least brought their calves with them, you know, got them. But no, God said, you are going to go take my, play, take my ark back to Israel where it belongs. And they did. And so the power of God. So the Philistines are looking at this and going, okay, their God must be something because these cows are not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not acting like mother cows. And they're going all the way to Israel. And it kind of blew their minds. Because they had beat Israel. And in their minds, they had defeated Israel's God. And yet, Israel's God has caused them nothing but problems, even though they conquered his people. And they didn't understand, because these people did not understand the rules and laws of a God being different from what people wanted to do. God's laws come from his character and represent him. The gods that are idols come basically from the base nature of man and are what we want to do. 
And this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion because number one, we can't keep God's laws because they are exactly opposite of what we want to do. We have to be, we can only keep his rules when he comes in and gives us the power to keep his rules because he lives inside of us to be able to live those rules. And every other religion is based upon man's nature. Now, they may have things, be kind to people, but somewhere they'll have unless. Jesus said, be kind to your enemies. They would go, well, be kind to all those that do nice things, and you can do whatever you want to the, the ones that are mean to you because they deserve it. Give them what they deserve. And this is the way the world thinks. Just do to people what they deserve. If they're nice to you, be nice to them. If they're mean to you, be mean to them. And we hear, see this all the time because that is the human nature. And in sociological circles, they call it the law of reciprocity. Whatever somebody does to you, they should expect to give back. And we're taught in the business world, you know, if you're in customer service, be nice to people. And usually they'll be nice to you. And it is true. I have many times been nice to somebody who is way, way off the charts on their emotions and been able to bring them down just by being nice to them and kind to them and not responding back to them in the way that they're, they're responding and or expecting. Just being kind and nice to them. And that's all part of what God says. To love others, to be kind to them, even though it goes against our human nature. And this is where Habakkuk is at this time. And we're going to stop here because... Do unto others as they do unto you. It's not from the Bible. No, that's not, in the, that's not the way the Bible puts it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. All the other religions say do unto others as you, you know, as they, as they do unto you. It's not a biblical statement to turn it that way. Jesus told us to be kind to people that weren't nice to us. He told us to treat people the way we want to be treated, which is a big difference from every other religion that gets close to that, but not quite there. And this is the thing about it. There are lots of religions out there that teach all kinds of things that sound close to what God says, because Satan is a liar and a deceiver, so he takes what God says and twists it just enough to be non-biblical. You know, one of the things that, especially here in America, is taught all the time, you know, God helps those who help themselves. That is not even close to what the Bible, it sounds great, but it is not what the Bible says. The Bible very clearly teaches God helps those who cannot help themselves, or won't help themselves, or are unable to help themselves. He says, if you were, the weak shall be strong, and the strong will be humbled. You want to be the leader of everybody? Be the servant of everybody. Now, God says all kinds of strange things. And he says, who am I going to help? Those who recognize that they are fallen, lost sinners. He goes after the least and he says, and until we're ready to humble ourselves and say, God, I am nothing, we won't be able to let him be Lord and Master. And that is really what it comes down to. He wants to be Savior Lord, Master, and have us be humble before Him. And it's hard. People who are self-reliant have a really hard time being reliant on God. And it's difficult. And it's hard. 
And yet that's exactly what he wants. And that is unfortunately why so many men will not bow their knee to God because they are taught from early on, be a man, stand up for yourself, don't let anybody tell you what to do. And then you have God saying, I want to tell you what to do. And Satan's lie to them is that yeah, you're, you can't be a man and follow God because now you're, now you're not standing up for yourself. You're, you're, you're relying on somebody else. You're, you're not a man if you do that. And this is the problem that we have with the world system. Satan lies all the time and we need to be able to know God and trust God and follow him. And then when we really turn to God, God will take our strength and self-reliant and say, now let me show you how you can use this for me. And, you know, we see all through scripture how God uses different types of people to get things done. And he'll use the strong in, by the ways of the world to get things done as well. But he also wants that strength to be meekness put under control of God. Because sometimes strength gets out there and says, well, I'm going to do things my way. God has had to break me of that so many times over my years because I'm a manager. I'm a take charge type of person. And once I make a decision, as all good managers do, I am going to make that thing happen. Come hell or high water, I am going to make my plan work. And God has had to take times with me sometimes and say, all right, you want to take that attitude? You're going to have a whole lot of high water and hell coming your way until you're ready to give up. And unfortunately, I'm stubborn enough that it takes a long, I've gotten better. <laughs> I've, all, I've told you guys one time, I fought with God for six years <laughs> to not bow my knee on a certain, certain area. And it wasn't dreadful sin. It was just, God, I'm going to make this work and I'm going to fix this and I'm going to get it taken care of. And God, you just stay out there. I, I've got this. And for six years, God stood against me. Now, the sad thing is, because I was married and had a family, for six years, my family suffered while I was too stubborn to give up. And you know how fast everything changed? Battling for six years, and within six months, everything was totally changed. God will use our strength if we will humble ourselves and put it under his control. And he wants to use our strength, but it needs to be under his control and he loves the weakness because he gets all the glory when we're weak so he loves weakness and it is amazing how many times God has used the weakest person that you could possibly imagine to run a ministry and you're going God that that's the person you want running that no, God God you, you you've got it wrong it, it should be this person over here they, they've got some skill no I want this person and God so often will put us in places that make no sense. And we're going, God, how can I be doing this? Why wouldn't you put me over? God, I really would like to be over here and doing this. We're going to close here. Lord, we ask you to be with us. Help us to follow you and to choose to follow you in all that you do. And help us to see you and act and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says 
the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.